This episode of the AD History Podcast is brought to you by you, our amazing patrons. Thank you for supporting the show and helping us create the AD History Podcast that you deserve. We could not do it without you. Have you ever wondered where the Roman pagan religion of old experienced its greatest dying breath? Or where you could find a perfect time capsule revealing the realities of life along the Silk Road? Well, do we have a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. And Sir Patrick, how are you on this lovely day, a perfect day to be recording our newest episode of AD History? Yeah, I mean, it's always a perfect day when me and you talk, Paul, you know that, but... um. It, it, it's really it's exciting. true. It's, it's true. true. It's true. We've got some really exciting stuff covered, uh, coming up in today's episode of AE History. Um, of course, I need to talk about the weather. The weather's been atrocious here recently, Paul. We've had three storms batter the UK consecutively. We had uh, Dudley first, followed by Eunice, followed by Frederick. So hopefully everyone's well, even okay got the naming that. treatment. Oh, yeah. They all got the names, of course. They got names. I don't know how, wev- how the weather's been over your, your side of the pond, Paul, but. Not been great here. It's been winter in the Northeast. You get some cold, you get some snow. Every once in a while, you get a nice warmer day. But we're almost out of February, mm-hmm. and that is a good sign as far as this guy right here is concerned. Mm-hmm. But what do we have in store for today's episode, Paul? Well, we got a lot of really cool stuff that I mm. think everybody will enjoy. And the one we're going to be starting off with in this case is you, mm. my interesting friend. Yeah, I'm carrying on with the story of the emperors of Rome because we've got an absolute doozy this time around. Someone who wasn't emperor for that long, but he had a very interesting stab at it, I'll say. No no pun intended there. He wasn't actually stabbed, but he had a really good crack at his envisionment of what emperor of Rome should be at that time. Uh, yeah, I should say so. He mm. definitely is more than in just a small historical footnote. Mm. And on my side... We're going to go into something that I don't know that a lot of people are familiar with, but they will be after we are done, which is the Mogao Caves, which is going to be a fun little diversion out into what is today Northwest China. Really an incredible site. It's been a whole lot of fun to learn about. Now, I'm really looking forward to your uh, segment today, Paul. It's one of those things that I know literally nothing about, so I'm interested to learn about it. Well, my friend, with all that in mind and all of it out of the way, it is time to lay down our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Mr. Foot, Sir Patrick, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So, yeah, uh, on my end today, we're carrying on looking at the emperors of Rome in this very strange transitional period in ancient Rome's history. And we actually 
talked about who became emperor. If you listened to our last episode, uh, you know who's emperor by now. And also, by now, Rome is pretty much well and truly a Christian empire. But there will be one final bump in that road before full-on Christendom. And this came in the form of Emperor Julian. Uh, as we know, we, we talked about Julian becoming emperor. This was Constantius II's cousin who he let survive. He got raised to the emperor by his uh, followers. We know the story. We'll cover it in more detail in just a moment. Uh, this was Emperor Julian. And he actually became known as Julian the Apostate. Man, what a name. What a name to be left to history. Yeah, and for those unaware, like like myself, where I researched this, of what exactly an apostate is, it's someone who renounces a religion. And he earned this title because this is exactly what he did. Julian renounced uh, the Christianity uh, the emperor and emperors before him adored. And in its place, he put the mythology and gods of old. This is why Julian is also seen as being the last pagan emperor of Rome. Uh, this is really fascinating stuff, Paul. But just let's just have a quick recap of how sure. we got to this point. Yeah, absolutely. You never know; everything could be every episode could be someone's first episode, and you need to get quite up to speed. Um, that, that's a pro tip right there mm -hmm. for anybody that's interested in starting a podcast, a show, a mm -hmm. YouTube channel of any kind. Always come from the perspective that mm. everybody watching is watching for the first time. Mm -hmm. it, but back to the show. Yeah, back to the show. So a quick recap doesn't help her if this is your first episode. So, of course, when Constantine died, Constantine the Great, his three sons took over. Uh, and these three sons, upon becoming co-emperors, split Rome up and killed all their male relatives to stop anyone usurping them. Uh, they killed everyone except uh, two of their cousins, and these were the young brothers of Julian and Gallus. These two, however, were kept under strict watch and they were practically prisoners of the palace. And as they grew older, Julian went to study in Greece and he fell in love with the Greek culture and, of course, Greek mythology, which, of course, was adapted by the Romans. Uh, his brother Gallus was made a Caesar by Constantius II, as we talked about. And by this time, Constantius II was the last surviving son of Constantine. Though Constantius II was a paranoid individual for a whole plethora of reasons we've talked about. Mm. And he killed Gallus and locked up Julian. Um, so suffice to say, having his brother killed annoyed Julian quite a bit. And when Julian was eventually freed, Constantius II made him the head of Gaul. And he took on this role like a duck to water. And he was so good in Gaul that his soldiers actually declared him their emperor. This angered Constantius II so much, he left his campaign against the Sassanids he was currently doing to go fight his cousin. However, this battle of cousins for the ages never happened because Constantius died before reaching his cousin. He just died of illness and he actually on his deathbed declared Julian his rightful heir. And Julian is seen as officially becoming emperor of all of Rome on the 3rd of November 361. And that just brings us up to speed very quickly on the last two or so episodes of AD history. That's just a quick deep dive. So in this case, though, Patrick, it's interesting mm. because we were going over that, you know, it was a brief overview of your segment from mm. last time. And if you had been unfamiliar with the story, the outcome of that would have been almost unfathomable in so many ways. Because you would think Julian was about to get crushed, or at least one of them was. And the idea that fate just intervened, put Constantine into an early natural grave, and 
on top of it all said, you know what? I forgive you, mm. and I think you should take over. I mean, that is would be silly if you wrote it. Yeah. But that's how history works sometimes. It's always not the most predictable or, <laughs> for all intents and purposes, the best conventions of storytelling. Just sometimes weird stuff happens. That's very quotable. Yeah, and this is this was one of those weird things as we talked about in the previous episode. This was like one of the dumbest things we've covered yet. Gonzalez the second making Julian his cousin who despised him his uh, co-emperor Caesar was just a dumb thing, and it's probably worth talking about Julian's relationship with Christianity now. And suffice to say, Julian did not have the best relationship with Christianity, and this primarily comes to the fact that he was a prisoner in a Christian household. His early days, he was tutored primarily by a Christian bishop. And while he was active in the church as a boy, the religion just never really gelled with him. And it's so easy to understand, Paul, why he didn't get on with Christianity. Young people love to rebel against things they were brought up with. We see that today, like teenagers being moody, not doing what their parents want them to do. So natural, so natural. But 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 Julian had a bit of a more than that because unlike most young people, Julian, unlike most young people, Julian was actually held prisoner literally by the religion. He was he probably deeply linked the religion to the death of his entire family. It's and, it's certainly not implausible. I mean, when you think about it, considering Constantius is ultimately, mm. even though he's not in charge of Christianity, no, being no. its greatest patron, of course gives him a great deal of influence over it Mm. you can just it's pretty just it's just clear to see why he would have such a bee in his bonnet regarding the religion it's so easy to understand why what a perfectly employed (laughs) antiquated term i love that i'm gonna have to remember i'm not even being sarcastic i i I love that that was great bee in his bonnet have you never heard that term i have heard it but i haven't heard it in well over a century (laughs) it just must have just cut it it just came to me clearly when I was doing my note taking I thought what's the best way to explain it he's got a real bee in his bonnet about Christianity it's so easy to see why like cheers to that yeah like you don't need much evidence to see why Julian didn't like the religion but he kept his hatred about the religion kind of under wraps he wasn't openly Hmm. anti-Christian his entire life like we didn't seem to know yeah, we don't really seem to know if the soldiers who elevated him to Emperor shared this opinion of his. It was just something he kind of had brewing away inside him. And it seems he kept these views to himself until after Constantius II's funeral. Uh, Julian presided over this funeral as he was emperor by now. And that's, that, that's the tradition that the current emperor resides over the previous uh, funeral, the previous one's funeral. Yes, he has to be the chief mourner. Mm-hmm. And it was only after this funeral that he announced his plans to bring Rome back to paganism. And this was quite unexpected, to say the least. And with this, Julian started his big old scheme to bring Rome away from Christianity that had taken hold of it over the last few decades, century or so, and make it pagan once again, bring back Jupiter and Neptune and make Mercury. Roman pagan again. We should get hats with that on, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> or another another AD history theme T-shirt, in addition to one that was recommended to us by one of our users. What happens on Capri stays on Capri. 
I thought that was a particularly good That's suggestion. That's a great one. Make Roman pagan again. Mm, yes. that? I can't even think what the anagram would be. Mr. Mr. Make Par. the empire pagan again. That's one. Meepa. Make empire pagan again. Meepa. There we go. Meepa. 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 That won't go badly, I'm sure. So not only did Julian want to bring paganism back to Rome, he wanted to eradicate Christianity at the same time. And it's really interesting looking at how he went about doing this. And of course, eradicating religion is no new thing to Rome. Like various emperors had already done it to remove paganism and to replace, replace it with Christianity. And we don't even need to mention the treatment of Judaism under the Roman Empire. Like this was no new thing. Even when Christianity first came about, they tried to get rid of that too. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because something that's been going on in the background here during these particular decades in question during our show is that there's been another major Jewish revolt in Roman Palestine at the same time. So the uh, the fact that the Jews are not particularly in the good books of the Roman excuse me of the ruling Roman elite at this mm. point is not a terrible surprise despite the fact that the two never truly got on that well. But that's something you and I have explored in some depth so far in the show. Exactly. I'm sure when we get to what we missed, Paul, we'll be covering it there as well again, because it's a real, real interesting stuff there. Cheers. But and normally when, uh, when Rome historically has tried to get rid of religion, they just do simple bans, they just use mm. brute force. They like go, no, you can't yeah. do this anymore. And what's interesting is this isn't actually how Julian attempted to dismantle Christianity. He was a really clever guy. We talked about this last time. He had that classical Greek education. He was a really highly yes. intelligent guy, especially in regards to emperors. You know, like the last hundred years, so we've had soldiers as emperors. Like I'm sure you remember Maximinus Frax. Like all those barrack emperors, man. Yeah, like and not not to discredit the intelligence of soldiers, but I'm sure they didn't no, have that Greek all. education. Goodness. On the battlefield. Yeah, something I've always lamented personally mm. is is that Smarmy saying, you know, isn't military intelligence an oxymoron? And <laughs> it's one of those things where I just look at them and I say, man, the greatest military minds in history are among some of the most intelligent individuals mm. that have ever lived. Now, if you've familiar with how the military, modern military works, or you, you've served in one capacity or another, yes, I do know that the process at times can be maddening, the bureaucracy and various elements in that regard. But let's put it this way. Successful military achievements are more often than not accompanied with some very smart and very capable people in charge. But mm. that's just a brief aside. Oh, no, totally. As you were, my friend. Yeah, thank you. But um, very clever guy. And instead of using the sort of ban tactics, he had far more clever tricks to try and rid Rome of Christianity. He kind of tried to undermine and poke holes in the religion to dissuade people from following it. And ultimately, it can kind of be broken down into five main tactics Julian used to try and remove Christianity from his empire. And these five tactics, Paul, are so interesting because they're just kind of not really what we would expect when it comes to getting rid of something, especially yeah. with Rome. And I can perfectly see with this first tactic. Tactic one, number one, was no killing. And that's like the way Rome got rid of 99% of their problems by killing people. 
Judy and <laughs> they're wanted, not alone. Judy wanted no one to die in this, and this was because he was very aware of how important martyrs had become in the religion. And Judian felt that if he killed any of the central figures in Christianity, that would result in Christians becoming more devout, more strongly believing, strong, believing more strongly in their religion. He realized that death wouldn't benefit him. He couldn't just kill no. these figures. And that's yeah. such a clever idea to have such a clever thing to think. <laughs> yes, it's, it's amazing that we mm. seem to have devolved to the point where no killing is clever. Yeah, yeah. See, Kind of got a far, took a while to get there, but we're there for now anyway. Yeah, for and now. Then, tactic two, he actually let different sects of Christianity practice freely. Because uh, by now, Christianity had already began splitting up into different sects. With the two main ones of these being the Orthodox and the Aryan sects, which we've talked about to varying degrees in the past. And these different sects of the religion didn't see eye to eye, to say the least. Julian let these two different sects of the religion practice freely. He was like, yeah, come do your thing. And he thought that by letting them do this, that split between two would naturally intensify by allowing them to have equal platforms. He would just let it, that would come to a boiling point. And he thought the religion would tear itself apart from the inside of its own accords. You know, it's really amazing. When I, when I was reading that for the first time, when I, I, I first saw your show notes, and I was going through them, and I saw the idea of let the different sects pa- practice freely. I thought to myself, I know exactly what he's about to do. He's <laughs> gonna let. He's gonna take off the chain. Mm. He's gonna say, "Do what you want to do," and then let them solve his problem by annihilating each other. <laughs> Very clever idea, isn't it? Like I said, these are just stuff. These are kind of tactics we just haven't really come across yet in AD history, and I just find them so fascinating. Oh, oh, they absolutely are. It, mm. It's it's ingenious in its own very ruthless kind of way. In a third-party, mm. objective, dispassionate look, you stop and you think to yourself, oh, oh yeah, so that, that's, that's mm. quite clever. It's terrible, yeah. but it's clever. <laughs> it's terrible, but clever. That's Roman in a nutshell. Um, <laughs> And this third tactic is, I guess, somewhat more traditional. He simply would write against a religion. And thanks to his Greek education, Julian was a terrific writer and debater and all-around orator, really. And he used his writing to attack the religion and poke holes in it. Like, And one of the things he did is he argued that it was that by Jesus preaching forgiveness... He felt that that was a bad thing because he felt that by doing this, Christianity attracted people with no interest in self-improvement. That's like some great lawyer sort of level stuff there. Oh, you're preaching forgiveness? That means you don't want to self-improve. And that just yeah. Says, yeah, it's just interesting stuff. It's an interesting concept because within mm. Christianity set up, which is mm. to say that one of the fundamental tenets of Christianity mm. is that Jesus died for everybody's sins. So mm. that meant the, the slate is wiped clean. Yet at the same time, and this is something I don't think that is necessarily clearly understood necessarily from those who are not Christian or don't have a greater familiarity with it for one reason or another, mm. is at the same time, while that may be the case, it also creates a certain expectation for one to live up to and be worthy of mm. such a sacrifice. So while the slate is clean for all intents and purposes, there is this underlying 
aspect of it, which is says, okay, the slate's clean, but now you have to live up to making that sacrifice, truly having been worthwhile. And that's mm. a very, it's a very kind of nuanced and subtle thing that I don't think is necessarily understood unless you have some kind of familiarity on the subject, however you might have that familiarity. And so for him, I see that and I think to myself, well, clearly he's rejected Christianity, but <laughs> it doesn't seem like he ever fully grasped onto it to begin with either. That's not to demean his choice by any means, but at the same time, it's a very strange arrangement that really comes into some of the more subtle nuances of that faith. Mm, he's just he's just been a really good spin doctor, I feel. It's like taking oh, yeah. anything in the religion and being able to spin it to be a negative. And he did this with a huge piece of writing he did called Against the Galileans, which was a big argument against Christianity. I believe this was three books, but we only have fragments of it surviving today. And the key point in these writings is that he said the religion was unrealistic and too superstitious. And calling a religion unrealistic I just that's a very strange argument to take. I'm not I'm not saying Christianity isn't unrealistic. How can you so strongly be supporting one religion while saying the other one's unrealistic and too superstitious? The Romans the Romans got scared if there was too many bir birds in the air like it was divination a was yeah. such a big part of being, you know, a Latin Roman. Mm, so it's just there's just him trying to find any hole he could poke in yeah, the religion I mean, it's kind of, in these writings it, it's it comes off as sophistry yeah yeah i mean the fact the fact of the matter is that when it comes to religion it's not a matter of realistic or no un unrealistic it's it's aspirational yeah it, it's a outflow of very particular values in this case in the theological sense which are supposed to in, in ways inform betterment in the realistic day-to-day but the fact that he uses the term unrealistic is just awfully strange. I've never heard it put quite that way before. Yeah, no, me neither. It just seems seems strange to say this like this religion is unrealistic, but this one is realistic. I just found that strange. But something that's also really yeah. interesting with uh, old Julian Paul is with that Greek um, background, not only did he write a lot against Christianity, he wrote a lot of philosophy too. And he wanted to be known as the second philosopher emperor, like our good friend Marcus Aurelius. And do you know what he even did, Paul, to try and imitate his idol? He grew a beard. And this was something that was highly unfashionable at the time. I think Rome goes through big periods of beards or no beards. They do. Yeah, this was a no beard period at the time. We can see that from we can see that from Constantine, Constantius II. Uh, no beards at all, but he wanted to be like Marcus Aurelius. He wanted to be this whimsical philosopher emperor. But right out of Plato. Yeah, exactly. And kind of got there to a degree. But going back to his tactics, well, then we have a tactic four. Yes. Uh, this is the closest he came to actually banning anything. He actually stopped Christians from teaching. Uh, he, huh. he didn't allow Christians to become teachers in any professional capacity. And he had reasoning for this, however, because at this point, most teaching came from uh, classical Greek texts and philosophers such as Homer. And these, of course, deeply related to the myths of ancient Greece and in turn, the myths of ancient Rome. And Julian believed that Christian teachers had no right to teach these stories because being Christian, they fundamentally wouldn't have believed what they were teaching because these teachers were so steeped in the world of Greek and Roman philosophy. So he thought, 
if you're not going to believe it, you can't teach it. And that's a thing unto itself. But Tactic 5, Paul, is the craziest of these all. This is an interesting one, folks. Strap yourself in. This was a big old swing, this one. Tactic 5, Julian wanted to rebuild the Jewish temple. Uh, of course, the Jewish temple is something we've covered before in a lot of detail. Many this, times, yep, yeah. This, this was the temple destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 yep. AD. Julian wanted it rebuilt. This was not to appease the Jews of Rome, unfortunately. This had nothing to do with getting the Jews in his good books. Nothing to do with making them happy. Nothing to do with giving them what they want. This was to anger the Christians, and it was in an attempt to prove Jesus wrong. During his lifetime, Jesus foretold that this temple would be destroyed. And of course, this actually happened, like, as we know, in 70 AD after Jesus' death. Yeah, it only took four decades. Yeah, it it happened. Uh, Julian believed that, well, if I rebuild the temple, this would prove Jesus wrong. Never was destroyed, I rebuilt it again. You're wrong. Like, of course- how petty indeed. And like, that wouldn't disprove Jesus's prediction. The temple still got destroyed. Everybody's familiar with this. And of course, the temple didn't get rebuilt. Like, did that never actually happen? But that was one of his big ideas. And it's just a fascinating idea. If that, if that followed on, history would be very, very different. But it's just a what possibly. His, yeah, it's one of his big swings. So. Those were his tactics to try and get rid of uh, Christianity. So as well as demoting Christianity, Julian simultaneously promoted the old pagan church. Yeah, and I'm curious, how did he go about exactly remaining, you know, rebuilding, Mm. remaking, reimagining Rome's pagan past? How did he want it to rise like the phoenix from the proverbial ashes, Mr. Foot? Well, that's a great question, Paul. And like, that's kind of exactly what he did. He remade it. He didn't just bring it back. He kind of wanted to retool it because Rome's old pagan religion was never really like a formal church. It was various temples to specific re- gods. Re- retool it is perfect, especially in his case, because mm. I only see one tool in this equation. <laughs> yes. And that's Julian himself. But throughout uh, uh, history, Rome like absorbed gods from other cultures and religions. We talked about this with the cushions, that sort of thing. Like, it's happening oh, yeah, all the this, time. Like, yeah, hybridization. Yeah, yeah. They were like coins with Roman gods on one side and Buddha on the other. Like they just picked up whatever they found. And by this point, many in Rome and the Rome, wider Roman Empire just thought the paganism was a bit outdated. Christianity taught people about morals and virtues, and Roman mythology just had this sort of might is right philosophy. I saw it dubbed as where whoever's strongest and can beat up the most people is correct. Christianity just wasn't that. People liked what Christianity was teaching them. So Julian wanted a proper pagan church for Rome with like solid foundations and a a system like Christianity. And Julian worked with his fellow philosopher Seleucius in forming a new outline for his pagan religion. And it borrowed heavily from ideals written about by Greek philosophers like Plato. So there's a whole thing you can read online. It'll be linked down below. I I think it's called On the Gods of the World. And it's just this sort of manifesto for this idea of this religion. I've got a little extract from it from here. This is from... Yeah, let's hear it. Let's hear what he's got coming from this. This is from chapter one from On the Gods and the World. 
And this is just a short paragraph, and it's what the requisites are which an auditor concerning the gods ought to possess and of common conception. So basically, what kind of person should you be in this religion? Translating into Patrick speak. Uh, <laughs> yes. and, and it reads, it is requisite that those who are willing to hear concerning the gods should have been well informed from their childhood and not nourished with foolish opinions. It is likewise necessary that they should be naturally prudent and good, that they may receive and properly understand the discourse which they hear. The knowledge likewise of common conception is necessary, but common conceptions are such things as all men, when interrogated, acknowledge to be inaudibly certain, such as that every god is good, without passivity and free from all mutation. For everything which is changed is either changed into something better or into something worse, and if into something worse, it will become depraved. But if into something better, it must have been evil in the beginning. Does that make any sense to you, Paul? I understand the bare bones of that. It's basically saying, be good. If you are good, you are probably bad to begin with. If you change from being good, you're going to be bad, and you're going to be bad for being bad, is once again that in Patrick's speak. In a first pass reading of that, it mm. seems quite circular. Yeah, it, in it many really respects. Does. Yeah, I feel like he's not. It sounds like he definitely has some intellectual pretensions, obviously. Yeah, but in many respects, when you go and you get into the actual accounting of it, what has he actually even said? Exactly, it's all filler, isn't it? It's like everyone shall be good. Everyone shall not be bad. It's like, okay, well, tell me something new. It's very. It's very political. It's kind of like a political speech where they say all this stuff, but not much is actually happening. Many words, little substance. Basically, speaks much, says little. Yeah, and that, that, that's the perfect case here. And carrying on, he actually whipped up uh, this new religion. And carrying on, he actually obviously had priests of his new religion and he whipped them into shape to be what he wanted to be from his priests. He demanded they stay away from taverns and other disreputable entertainment he wanted his pagan peace priests to be a lot like the priests of Christianity. He wanted them to perform acts of charity and help the poor. And of course, he appointed himself as the head of this church. So basically, in a nutshell, he wanted Roman paganism to have that same structure as Christianity did, a leader, like a, a figurehead. Some writings, you know, he had gospel writings made up for the religion. He wanted bishops and priests who would help guide the religion. He just wanted it to have that same similar structure. structure as Christianity did. And I guess the question is, how did the public react to all of this? I would uh, be very curious to find out, Mr. Foote. And it all sounds like an absolute masterstroke, this, his tactics he used. There's just Maybe. one... Yeah, there's just one problem. The public did not buy it at all. Because Nope. No, Christianity had really cemented itself in the empire. People liked it. People just enjoyed it. And... They didn't want the change. Julian ended up basing himself in Antioch, and it was here he tried to convince his residents to join his new formalized pagan religion. But the public were really unamused and even insulted by this. And while he maintained his call during most of his reign, by now he was getting pretty angry. And so much so, he actually ordered a Christian martyr in the city to be dug up and like exposed, like. Look at this guy. This is like you know, just it's pretty disrespectful burying, you know, unburying a Christian martyr, and this led to riots and even a temple burning down. 
And in an angry response, Julian closed Antioch's main church and had people executed, which of course gave the Christian church exactly what Julian didn't want them to have, more martyrs. So he really lost his call by by the end here. And overall, it seems that Julian just wasn't held in the highest regard. History has like portrayed him as a really strange, awkward man and a bit of a laughing stock. But this may not be all true. Like like all our, all our knowledge of this time in history, you know, it comes with who was telling us this. And a lot of these contemporary accounts of the man are from Christians. And suffice to say, Christians wouldn't be portraying Julian in the best of lights. No, certainly not. But when I'm going through all of this and I was mm. I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, man, this guy seems truly detached from the reality on the ground, which is that Christianity, and we've said this several times in previous episodes, mm. that even with the amazing patronage that Constantine the Great provided when he eventually had the empire under his total control, both mm. east and west, that was a big deal. But Christianity at that point was already propagating organically. It had taken off and taken a life entirely its own exactly. at that you can't, point. You can't just change a religion like that. You can't just go, hey, you're, you're following this now. Like It dug its claws so much into the empire and into the world. Like Yeah, if you were to use, and this is a best case scenario if you're Julian, mm. To use an American football term based on what he was trying to do is that Christianity had the ball on the one yard line. That's the best case scenario. Mm. In reality, the score was, you know, was already 40 something to nothing. (laughs) All right. So that ship in so many ways had already sailed. And obviously he tried to do it in, in a clever way. Um, in, in certain respects, ways yeah. that I think one might look at and say, oh, well, that's that's an interesting tactic. But the reality of the, the matter is that just because the emperor wills something doesn't necessarily mean that the everyday, you know, Roman citizen or subject on the street is going to be interested or follow. And in this case, especially something that is in certain respects for you know, being forced upon them, it's only going to make them more intransigent. You know, in the case of religion, individuals and groups become recalcitrant very, very easily. And then when he creates the martyr Mm. upon basing himself in Antioch, which choosing Antioch doesn't necessarily seem like it's a coincidence there, given its exceptional proximity to Mm. Roman Palestine and where Jesus, you know, was born, lived, and taught, and eventually crucified. But this was an ambition too far, you know, game over, man, it's done. You know, you may not like it and you may have good personal reasons for you not to like it. It it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that the horse is going to drink. Exactly. And as the the saying I always love is you can beat a pigeon in a game of chess, but it's still going to stress around and shit on the board. Like you can be, yeah, you can be. That's an interesting one. I love that. I'm not belittling. I'm not saying people follow religion. No, no, no. No, It's just, you can have all the tactics in the world. And that's what Julian had. He was like a master chess player, but he wasn't playing another master chess player. He was playing a pigeon who wasn't interested in playing chess at all. Well, I I definitely wouldn't compare Christianity to a a common bird shitting on on the the game board. (laughs) But the reality was the game was up. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He, no yeah. backsies. Yeah, no backsies. That, that, that game had ended and Julian was still playing it. But um, he actually did more than just try to change Rome's religion during his reign, however. And like most emperors, he was always on the hunt for more land and to defending his land. And like many emperors before him, the allure of Persian land cooled. And so from Antioch, he prepared for invasion. And under Julian's lead, however, the Roman military wasn't quite what it was in the past. And this was so interesting because he was such a good ruler in Gaul. But apparently during these battles, he just didn't have it. And Persians kicked Rome's butt, putting it nicely. And during these battles, this battle against Persians, Sassanids, uh, Julian actually met his fate as a spear pierced right through his liver. That's the famous story. A spear went through the air, landed into his liver. How 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 interesting that it's so specific where the wound yeah. was. Yeah, I, I wonder that's if there's some symbolism to that. I mean, when I think the liver, obviously, like, that quite ironically relates into Greek and Roman mythology with Prometheus getting his liver plucked out. So maybe... Maybe oh, it's well, something to do go. with that. Maybe it may maybe it's something to do with how Prometheus died, got punished with the albatross in his liver. And it was after um this he actually died. And his death is seen as being on the 26th of June, 263 AD, which actually means despite how much he got up to trying to change the religion, he was actually only emperor for just less than two years. I just find it interesting because in the run-up to Julian becoming emperor, he seemed incredible. In the last episode, he seemed like he had, he had like this sort of, he was kind of almost a wunderkind in some regards. He got given ghoul. He yeah. took to that like a duck to water. People loved him. He just seemed like he was going to be the next great Roman emperor. emperor. Yet when he actually got to, to the head, to the throne, whatever you want to call it, he kind of just became obsessed with getting rid of Christianity. Like, if he just focused on what he was good at, he could have been like Rome's next great emperor, but he didn't. He just went, no, I, this, this is the hill I'm going to die on. I could do loads of other stuff, but no, I'm going to focus all my energy for the short time I have as emperor on getting rid of Christianity. And it's just bizarre. He got so pent up on reverting Rome. Who knows what could yeah. have happened otherwise? It's a strange predilection he had. That he didn't handle it in a more pragmatic way. He that... just seemed hell-bent on getting rid of it, where he could have been using his time in much... Using his more time and energy in, ways. Yeah, in more productive ways. Without a doubt. It, it's, it's strange. Mm. You know, we, we'll find, we've seen it before, and we'll see it again, where rulers end up getting caught up in their own personal missions and fixations, mm. and that it seems more or less like they are become the prisoner of them, and it definitely causes, you know, what should be greater priorities to suffer and then ultimately causes their greater rule to suffer as a result. Mm. But, and, I mean, but the fact that he is called Julian the Apostate uh, definitely carries title. its own historical stigma to mm. it. No, it's a great title to have. And what's interesting... Depending on who you are, I suppose. Yeah. And he was an apostate, I kind of, in another way, because he did do, while he didn't do some renouncing, I guess the people of Rome renounced his religion. And this... That's the way to put it. Yeah, and this, Julian's reign is seen as really the final nail in the coffin of Rome's paganism. As from what I could tell, the religion of old, Jupiter, Mars... Pluto, all of those figures, they were never really worshipped in mass in Rome. 
ever again. So that's kind of something to take away from this. This was really the end of the that last class- gasp. Yeah, the last gasp of that classic Roman tradition. Of course, it lives on in many ways, like the planets in our solar system. You know, they're still named after the Roman gods. So they're still oh, yeah. deeply popular. But as like an actual religion, a large amount of people follow it. And I'm sure there's people out there following the Roman religion the Roman gods in their own special way, but it's not a mass practice religion anymore. And I don't think it ever will be again in history. That and when you study ancient Greek culture, whether it be mm. their religion, whether it be the epics, whether it be the legends, whether it be classical tragedy, mm. you can definitely understand the appeal of it. Mm. It offers a lot to the individual that is very interesting. It's very compelling. It's, oh, yeah. There's a reason that it has stuck with us. Not yeah. necessarily at the expense of what somebody, someone might believe in addition to that, but having gone and learned about it myself, I can certainly understand the appeal of it oh, and, yeah. and how somebody could very much be drawn into it and, and ultimately hold a tremendous affinity. Oh yeah, I deeply, I deeply love Greek mythology, but I, I don't worship it. Like I think it, I've read books and the stories, but I don't, I don't take it as gospel. I take it as fun stories. People, interesting choice of words. In which way? Oh, gospel. Yes, yes, yeah. Yes. Pun intended, I suppose. Yes, but of like, course. Like I see it as, as great historical. These were ways in which people explained the world around them before they could explain it in any other way, and I just think they're wonderful in their own regard. But I and many other people who are into Greek mythology don't see it as an actual religion anymore. And that, that's what happened here. People, it fell out from being a religion and it became a mythology, I suppose. And something that is kind of interesting, if anybody gets into what they call classical tragedies, so Sophocles, mm. Aeschylus, Euripides, mm. you read it, especially when you read it for the first time, especially because they're based on the many times the continuing stories of the major figures that show up in the epics. Like, for example, whether it be mm. the Odyssey or the Iliad, especially the Iliad, looking at it to me, it looks like the first major stab in a, in a big way, in a way that became very popularized, of fan fiction. <laughs> it's really interesting when you think about it in that yeah. regard. And at some point, we're going to do an episode that focuses on on, on literature, and, yeah, <laughs> and the various stories so many of the peoples that we've covered have told in more detail, and that'll be fun. That's something to look forward to down the road, but mm. is that what you have for us today? That's all I have. So goodbye, Roman paganism. Thanks, thanks for the planet names. <laughs> and, and goodness, and goodness, so much else. How, how, yes. how we continue to, to go to that well so much today, but with that in mind... Us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from one. Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash AD History Podcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick.
Okay, Paul, it's time for another great question for us to answer sent in by one of our great listeners. Yes, the Patreon submitted question. And if you want one of your questions answered in an upcoming middle segment where we do just that, go over to patreon.com slash 80 history podcast and donate to the show and join Odo's Adiophyte army on the $5 tier or higher and you can submit a question that we will be sure to answer in an upcoming middle segment just like this. Whether it's about history in general, history we've covered, history coming up, hmm. something that relates to the show or somehow falls within Patrick or my professional life, that is all in play. And today we have an interesting one, especially because this is very much an opinion one, to be sure. And this yeah. was submitted by, by a listener in our Patreon-submitted question. And their question goes as such, quote, Do you think that one of the main reasons for Rome's eventual fall was due to Diocletian's being viewed as emperor being a god? Close quote. And this is an interesting question because in the context of Rome, especially if you go back a couple of centuries, and we've covered this part in our show, that in the imperial period of Rome, The idea, the one that we call emperor, of course, wasn't even called emperor until the beginning of the second century. Hmm. But essentially, the emperor was known as princeps, which translates roughly from Latin into English as the first among equals. Disingenuous or otherwise, that was very, (laughs) very much the idea here. Prior to a lot of the changes that happened over time, if you go to the earlier parts of the imperial period, any time a sitting emperor started flirting with the idea as presenting themselves as in some way divine, that was a huge faux pas. It's right there with calling yourself king. Mm. It's just something you didn't do. But as time went on, the, the top post, the princeps, the one we call emperor, you know, beginning in the second century, this begins to change. And they bec- it becomes more hierarchical. They may be called princeps, the idea of being this first among equals, but how much that plays out in reality is a very different story. Then, of course, you get to Diocletian. And Diocletian, of course, is the, is the guy who gets so much credit for basically helping and dragging Rome out of its crisis of the third century because... He didn't just have a set of reforms, things here and there he wanted to do to improve business. He was cleaning house in so many ways. And so you go from this idea prior to him of the emperor being this first among equals to a fellow that is considered basically lord of the empire, where they have this, they're not god, but they're almost godlike, I think is the better Mm. way to put it. There is a certain divine implication there you know was it a significant contributor that's a that's an interesting question you know is this one of the one of the main reasons they asked is this one of the main reasons and i mean when i first look at that question the first thing i think to myself is patrick Hmm. which is there are so many other things that i could point to before this that i felt what would definitely qualify as a main reason for why this whole thing began to fall apart. 
totally yeah if someone was to ask me hey what why do you think the roman empire failed it would be saying oh because the emperor became more godlike is way down on the list of reasons i would say i can understand understand why it is definitely a factor i can understand why they asked the question it, it's it's very very hard to to really start there yeah, yeah. That, that, when I come to think about, as I said, when I come to think about reasons why Rome collapsed or factors towards the end of Rome, the fact the emperor became more godlike isn't hard on the list, but I understand why it's there. It makes a degree of sense. Like the role of emperor had varied throughout throughout the time of the Roman Empire. Like you had the people who were like, you had the sort of emperors who would join their men in the battlefield. All of a sudden, you had these emperors who were godlike. You couldn't really look at them. If you saw them, you'd have to like get on your knees, that sort of thing. It's a very different way. And as you said, princeps, princeps originally meant the first among equals. This totally flies in the face of that philosophy. You know, this is clearly stating no, the emperor isn't equal in any way, shape, or form to their followers. And I think that's an interesting thing. It really does kind of change. It wasn't so much the fall, but it was definitely a big sea change in the empire. Diocletian seen as very much correcting the ship of Rome. And he did that in some very unique ways and changed Rome fundamentally so it could carry on. So in some ways, if this is what it took, if having an emperor who was more godlike is what Rome needed to carry on at that time, then it's even kind of hard to ask that that wasn't part of the fall. It was kind of something that helped keep the ship afloat to some degree. It was at least a bit of duct tape on the, in a hole to some degree. Yeah, I, I would say that the vast majority in many respects, not everything, like you can mm. take, for example, the Edict on Maximum Prices, which was a total failure. Yeah. But for the most part, certainly this is a different case if you are a Christian and openly so. Mm. Diocletian proved in many respects to be a far greater positive contributor and lending to the extension of the life of the Roman Empire more than he certainly took away from it. Mm. I mean, when I look at various reasons that the Roman Empire ultimately fell, I don't necessarily point to Diocletian in the in this respect because no, not at all. In, it, yeah, in, in the case of Diocletian, I can tell you one thing that would be problematic to me, and this mm. is on a human leadership level in this case. So while the imperial post, the top imperial post, had kind of been trending in this very hierarchical fashion, when you get to the point where you have an emperor that is openly accepting the idea that they have some sort of divine status, that if you are somebody behind closed doors that is giving him advice and is counseling him, is that it becomes a lot harder to tell somebody that is in that incredibly august, nay, divine position mm. things they don't want to hear. I can see that being a problem, to be sure. But in the case of the Romans, I mean, overcoming, you know, there are so many economic issues and military issues, and the fact that their neighbors are getting far more capable and the mindset of the empire changing. And then, of course, coming up in the next episode, you know, we begin seeing uh, the actions of the Huns where it's not mm. open conflict yet between they and the Romans, but you're seeing this mass demographic shift when the Huns are coming in out of the European steppes. And all of these Germanic tribes that had been living beyond the Rhine and the Danube 
if they don't stay, they end up going en masse into a place like Gaul where you put a tremendous amount of pressure on them. In addition to a variety of other political instability that came after Diocletian's time as well. So I, I can't point to that definitively. And to be fair, this is entirely up for debate. This is very much an opinion. This is totally, this is mine and yours opinion, Paul. Uh, this is the person who asked the question. It's an opinion of theirs. And that's completely cool to have. We're all allowed to have our own opinions. But off the top of my head, if you ask me this, I really fight hard to, to say yes to it. I don't think it really was a main reason for Rome's eventual fall. I think it changed. I said, I think it shifted Rome. But I just don't think it was a main factor in any capacity. I think there were much bigger issues facing Rome. And even if Diocletian, I guess the argument would say, well, say if Diocletian didn't do this for the to the role of emperor, say if he carried on letting the emperor be viewed as like an ordinary citizen, would Rome still have fallen? Probably because of the and other issues. he did issues. everything else exactly the same. Yeah, if he did everything else exactly the same, probably because, maybe not because I, no, I think that probably, it probably would, would still have fallen. I feel like that wasn't, while it was a really interesting thing he did for the empire and for the role of emperor, I don't think it really would have contributed in that huge way. No, and I, I, I like the way you put that, as if, mm. if that was the only thing that he didn't do, would things have largely turned out as they did? And of course, hindsight being what it is, but and this is entirely would go into a counterfactual here. Mm. But it is very hard to believe that things wouldn't have ended in a very similar fashion mm. around the same timetable. Uh, you know what I'm about to say is very much a, a much more modern opinion of this. But this is just it's you know since this is an opinion question, I do think that there is an an inherent instability when you have any sort of ruler that holds that much power unto mm. themselves to the point where arguing or disobeying them is arguing or disobeying with somebody that holds some kind of divine status, that's going to be a problem because I definitely believe that it requires a lot of good minds weighing in in order to make good decisions and ultimately to hold one's rulers accountable. So that in and of itself, I think, is an issue. That, and like I said earlier, even behind closed doors, it's very hard to argue or disagree with somebody like that or tell them things they need to hear but they may not necessarily want to hear. And I'm sure that differs from emperor to emperor after that point. There's no way mm. that it couldn't. But in reality, that's what I consider to be the dangerous situation. In terms of just larger structural issues and how ultimately that change affected Rome in the longer term, Ultimately, I think you're you're right on that if that was the only thing he didn't do, mm. things probably would have ended in a very similar fashion. And do you think when the Huns came to Rome, when the Goths came to Rome a few like decades, centuries later, do you think they got to the gates of Rome and went, hold on, lads, their emperor is godlike, let's, let's back away? <laughs> no, like, they, I don't think they really cared what, how the emperor was viewed. When no, they no, came no, to no. deafing. Like, and, and, yeah. and of course not. But in, just in terms of the domestic instabilities and policies yeah. and various things that were going on, I'm sure it didn't help. But there's a lot of other stuff that you can point to first, more than we can possibly get to in definitely. this. Definitely. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, if you listen to our show, you could see where a lot of these fault lines ultimately existed. That yeah. and right now, the schism between East and West seems like it's becoming more and more. Uh, divided. 
Exactly. And like when we talk about the reason for Rome's eventual fall, like do you, I guess this question can be meant Western Romans fall because obviously the East stays pretty pretty stable they, for a good Yeah, they become the Byzantines. Yeah, they basically for a good get, while longer. You get to the 15th century before they're out of the picture and that's exactly. a, it's almost the beginning of the 16th century. Yeah. However but, you want to quantify it. But this was a really great question, Paul. This was a really It was. Good, it was a very fun, thoughtful yeah. question. Yeah, I, really thoughtful I, I enjoyed one, yeah. this. Uh, this was this is a good one. If on one to bat around. Mm. And long if, story short, I'm sure it didn't help. Yeah, it definitely, definitely didn't help. But Paul, if people want to send in questions for us to answer in this middle segment, how can they do it? The best way to get your question answered in this middle segment, of course, is by going over to patreon.com slash 80 history podcast and joining Odo's Adiophyte army, specifically on the $5 tier per month or higher, in which case you can submit a question for Patrick and myself to answer in one of these upcoming middle segments about history in general, something we covered, history, period, what's going on in years and I's professional life, something about the show, that is all in play. But starting off even on the $3 tier a month or higher, one is you get episodes both in the audio and video version. 48 hours in advance of its public release, you also get to enjoy the director's cut version of the show, which we're going to begin getting flowing once again. We've just been kind mm. of calibrating ourselves with the new medium in terms of the video, which has added an entirely new element to our production process. But that's wonderful. 48 hours early, both the video and audio version, the director's cut all wonderful stuff. And you can learn more by visiting patreon.com slash 80 history podcast and how you can help the show. It helps us immensely. It has made a direct contribution to us being able to expand the show's offerings in terms of becoming what is, we like to think, a quality video podcast as well, which you can get on YouTube if you're listening to us on the directories and you're curious what it looks like in studio as we're doing the show and you'd like to watch us do it. Go over to youtube.com slash 80historypodcast. But in addition to that, if you can't ultimately contribute to the show on a monthly basis, but you still do want to actually donate, you can also go and give us a one-time donation on PayPal. You can find the link to that over at tgnreview.com slash 80historypodcast in the About section or hmm. the Patreon page segment. Or if you're watching on YouTube, it is most certainly down in the description with a direct link. But even more than that, we understand times are hard right now. Mm. Totally get it. But you still want to help out the show. Something that you can do that would be really helpful, depending on how you're listening. If you're on YouTube, of course, subscribe and hit the ding dong notification bell so you know when we publish a new episode, which of course is every two weeks on the Saturday. And in addition to that, for example, if you are listening to the show and you're doing so on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a glowing review. It really helps the show. It helps potential listeners get a strong idea of what they're getting into and certainly helps us with Apple's algorithm, yeah. to be certain. That and, of course, leaving a very nice review on Podchaser, which is basically the podcast version of IMDb. Or mm. if you happen to be listening on Audible, yes, that's right, 
The AD History Podcast is available on Audible. If you do have Audible in one form or another, you can leave a rating and review, and that also helps us out immensely. So if you're looking to give us a po- you know, give us a boost and you want to help us out, leave a glowing five-star rating and review. It makes all the difference. And we do want to thank our patrons in particular who donate to us every month. We could not do it without you. You are a wonderful bunch, and we are extremely grateful. And with your help, we can continue making the AD History Podcast that you deserve. So we'd like to thank the individual who submitted this question to us. Very thoughtful, very interesting. And once again, if you have that question, go over to patreon.com slash Podcast. donate to us on the $5 tier a month or higher, and you can have your question answered in this segment as well. But with that in mind, us here, you there, and we'll be back right afterward from one, Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Okay, so Paul, you have a really interesting uh, topic f- uh, you're covering today, and it's something I, and I'm sure many of the listeners, had never actually heard about. So Paul, could you please tell us about the Magau Caves? Yes, the Magau Caves. This is, this is something else. I was really wonderfully surprised by this. And I definitely think you all listening right now, especially if you're longtime listeners of AD History, will get a similar gratification. So yes, the Magau Caves. One of the most fascinating and overlooked wonders of the world are the so-called Magau Caves, or the Caves of the Thousand Buddhas. While the complex in northwest China doesn't exactly have a thousand caves, they do number in the hundreds. This complex not only served the growing needs of the nearby Buddhist community and Dunhuang, but it also wrapped, it's also wrapped up in a greater history, the history of China, the Silk Road, Buddhism itself in China, and to an unexpectedly serve as a time capsule vault for historical documents believed otherwise entirely lost. But just as impressive is the complex itself, which was constructed steadily over centuries and all, apparently, it all began with a vision. And with that, I think it is best to set the scene. Dated to roughly 366 AD, lived a Buddhist monk near Dunhuang named Li Jun, and he had a tremendous vision. In his vision, he saw what he said was a thousand Buddhas in the southern reaches of Duanghong near a rock face, and these thousands of Buddhas he saw were just bathed in golden rays. It was due to the immense vision of Le Jun that inspired his effort to build the very first cave from this now famous rock face. The following account was apparently documented in a book called Fokonji, translated as An Account of Buddhist Shrines by Li Zhongzhi, or Zhengzhu, and dating its authorship to the Tang Dynasty, which basically ran through the 7th and 11th centuries AD in China. The apparent efforts that began with this one Buddhist monk, Le Jun, led to many others following his work, and Le Jun built the initial cave for 
contemplation, meditation, so, and worship. So does this sort of fit into Buddhism as a whole taking over China then? It very much plays yeah. into this picture. And as time went on, other monks, and especially initially hermits, followed in his wake. And yeah, it does go into this greater overall idea of not just Buddhism, but Buddhism in China. And as we discussed at some length during our first season episode, Buddhism arrives in China and Haley's Comet in the First Jewish-Roman War, China, through its many iterations, is a hybrid confluence of three major, major religious influences. One, of course, is Taoism. The other is not so much religious as it is kind of societal values, which, of course, is Confucianism. And then, of course, our topic today, Buddhism. Elevenism in China. Well, apparently so. Mm. However, Buddhism has undergone its own tribulations over the 2000 or so years since it first began making its way into China originally. From time to time, it has been viewed as a foreign or alien religion to China, making it a target for various rulers from time to time. Moreover, it has experienced competition and rivalry with the two other main theological, ideological belief systems in China, which of course are Taoism and Confucianism. But Buddhism, especially when you're talking about finding its way into China, is deeply wrapped up in the history of the Silk Road. That all being said, Buddhism as a religion glacially permeated China from the West, as we had discussed so long ago now, and was bolstered significantly due to the Silk Road. The Silk Road did far more than serve as a route for cross-continental commerce. With that commerce came foreign people and foreign ideas, Buddhism being a chief example among them. And I think I said this when we first talked about Buddhism's uh, formation. I am still so surprised here that it didn't originate in China. I, China is the country I associate most with Buddhism, hands down. I'm sure a lot of other people do. So Tia is actually from northern India. I, I always find that so surprising that it made its way to China via the Silk Road. I just, I just find that so interesting and fascinating. It, it really is, because mm. for the modern listener or viewer in this case, wherever you may be watching or listening to us mm. now, it's very much associated with the Far East, mm. without a doubt. And one of these major points along the Silk Road is a settlement that's known as Dunhuang. Dunhuang in particular was a settlement that flourished due to its proximity to the Silk Road. Dunhuang today sits in the northwest of China's Gansu province, really actually quite near Xinjiang. In the late 2nd century BC, Donghong was created to serve as a far north and west military garrison to protect against incursions by the Zhongnu. Hmm. Whoever thought that the Zhongnu <laughs> would show up in the very next episode after what we did on the Huns in our last episode. The Huns and their forebearers are just getting their hands on every bit of AD history at the moment, it seems, permeating they, the podcast. They surely are. And that's one of the amazing things about AD history, even as an intellectual exercise, <laughs> is that you realize that all of this is not nearly as distant and separate 
as you may initially conclude it to be. That's the thing I've always found so interesting about the whole exercise is that the world wasn't as large as we necessarily envision it in the past. Mm. And obviously, it's only become smaller over time. Yeah, yeah. So in this case, Duong Hong and Buddhism actually became something of an interesting marriage. Duong Hong grew rich as a major Western outpost for various Chinese ruling powers and dealt with mu- as much in ideas and things as it, thinking as it did commerce. Duong Hong at this time had a growing Buddhist presence. This was especially the case during the Tang Dynasty, which, as I mentioned, was from the 7th to 11th century, or actually rather 7th to 10th century, which is often considered a golden age dynasty for China. The caves are also well noted for their sculptures. In particular, I believe they have the second largest statues of the Buddha in the world, (laughs) which are very much prominently on display even to today, as I understand it, as well as countless paintings and murals that focused on Buddhist imagery, painted to help aid meditation, Mm. Buddhist teachings, and depicting the Buddha's journey toward enlightenment. There is an estimated half a million square feet of these paintings, landscapes, and murals within the caves themselves. So, why the need for so many caves? Surely you, got, you know, it's just like one cave to do all this in. Like, why'd that be so, you know, the quote unquote thousand caves? Yeah, so I've heard estimates in terms of how many caves mm. there are, anywhere from between, I think, like five and 700. But the thousand really does just kind of cement yeah. a, a nice. A nice mentally satisfying it, number it, there. It, it's something we've talked about in China's past. They love attaching numbers to things. We talked about like the year, like the the year of the three kingdoms, that sort of thing. I think there was like the year of the twelve emperors, something like that. They really like having a number attached to their events in history. Numerology is one of those things that you find in a lot of different cultures, and in this case, with Han Chinese culture and various cultures in. East and Southern Asia, mm. also quite prominent. So, yeah, you're, you're totally dead on there. So, why did they not just stop at one cave? Yeah. This is interesting. So, as time went on, other monks obviously wanted to expand upon this, but it goes further than that. This also, it basically corresponds with the growing population of Buddhists mm. in the nearby settlement of Donghong, specifically the non-monk, non-clergy population. And originally, these caves were created specifically for monks and hermit monks. But eventually, the public were allowed access as well. And interest in it grew immensely. Like, something else I'm wondering about this is like, making caves is hard work. Even today, like, it, you know, to mine like that, it would take. Lots of experience and some impressive equipment. How did they do this all the way back in like the 4th century AD? Okay, so two really good questions right here. Well, one is one of the reasons why it got expanded Mm. so much is that when you had the non-monk population gaining access, part of it has to do with a Buddhist act, I believe that's called a penya, where good or charitable actions of an individual would improve their lot in the next life because Buddhists believe in reincarnation. Mm. And so you would get a number of different benefactors who would want to sponsor a cave. Everything from emperors, you know, leading a dynasty 
or you know prominent local individuals other monks various groups that very much wanted to donate to this because it very much fed into the the this buddhist practice of penya so it made a lot of sense it made a lot of sense and ultimately how did they construct all of these especially without modern equipment like mm. it's interesting and it's quite fortunate in a way so what i understand about the rock in question is kind of this kind of a softer kind of rock it's not like a super mm. hard granite mm. so you could actually go and realistically do this with relatively rudimentary tools like shovels and and pickaxes mm. so ultimately it allowed them to do it you're not going to do it fast no no but and, nothing got you know, done fast back in the day <laughs> no certainly not but ultimately the geological structure in question definitely allowed for this to occur yeah, and who, who was funding this massive construction? Like, why? It all comes down to that Buddhist practice mm -hmm. of Pangya. It made a lot of sense because there was a growing population there. On top of the fact that you're now getting access to non-monks, mm. it's also a very wealthy community, so they have money mm. that they can put towards this. And it's really quite fascinating that it just keeps it keeps rolling and rolling and rolling where you're getting to the point where you have hundreds of caves. Mm. Consequently, that's the reason why it was able to continue expanding as such. This particular arrangement actually lasted for about a thousand years. Wow. Yes, but around the 14th century, if I'm correct, during the time of the Yun dynasty, or the Yuan dynasty, this immense site progressively became abandoned. So yeah. that's so strange to hear. I'm sure you're going to explain to us anyway, but why? I mean, we've seen this in history in the past. Impressive sites get abandoned. Like, do we know, do we have any idea as to why they would give up on this amazing cave structure? It has everything to do with the declining importance of the Silk Road itself. Mm -hmm. As we've discussed in the past, well, in this case, the Macau Cave Complex is entirely tied to the importance of Donghuang itself. When the UN dynasty eventually put essentially an end to the Silk Road, more or less, Duanghong in many respects kind of went with it. And when the importance and all the wealth that's pouring in there slowly trickles away, so did people. And mm. eventually, around the 14th century, the site became abandoned and would remain untouched for almost six centuries, until about the late 19th, early 20th century. So this is kind of a tangent, Paul, but I've just sort of do a little Google image search of uh, Duan Hong itself, and it's a fascinating-looking city. Like, I was, well, I was curious if it still stood in any capacity to this day. And when we think, yeah, when we think Chinese cities, we think these huge metropolises, like these sprawling cities, your Shanghai's, yeah. your Beijing's, your Hong Kong's, Shenzhen's, yeah. This isn't anything like that. It's and it's in a desert. Like ob obviously sure China, is. obviously China has desert, but China's so massive. We don't really talk about what's going on in its deserts. This is a really interesting city to look at, just from a visual perspective. I'd, I'd say anyone go have a look, Google search of this city because it's absolutely fascinating. It is, and mm. all of those major metropolises that you were just mentioning, those are all very much modern you know mm. that very much came up out of 
1979 and onward with the opening of China under Deng Xiaoping and yeah. the, you know, the economic miracle of China. But not the case here. No, no, We're, not at all. But it's fascinating to look at. And so we have this rediscovery in the late 19th and early 20th century. And it's an interesting turn of fate, I would say. It was a confluence of events that created something of a perfect storm at that time. A local Chinese Taoist named Wang Wanlu apparently was quite vital in initially uncovering the site. And he took it upon himself to act as a local caretaker for the site. Moreover, and this is part of that perfect storm, Europe at that time in archaeological circles had become quite interested in the study of the Silk Road basically at the same time. And as you can imagine, this also meant studies and various searches and digs were sent out to try and satiate that curiosity. Well, the one other thing I was going to mention, though, and this is mm. really important, is even though you had foreign interest in it, initially, there, you know, for those who were in charge, and this was at a time where China was about to you know, un undergo a massive upheaval prior to 1912, where you're going to see the end of the Qin dynasty. But a lot of rulers, both local and on a more national level, for whatever reason, when this gentleman, Wang Wanlu, tried to garner interest from them, it was a, something of a mixed response. I, I would say mild at best. So something I'm wondering, Paul, did, w was this cave system known of at the time and they were trying to find it or had it completely lost their history books as well and they just stumbled across it? Or did we know it existed somewhere? Did we have written historical evidence of it? We just didn't know where it was or was it a complete surprise when it was discovered? I think it was a combination of a lot of them, actually. Mm. I mean, I have to imagine the locals were at least familiar with it, but for mm. the most part, there just hadn't been a general interest, nor could they have any idea of ultimately what they would find when they began opening this thing up, in addition to a whole bunch of stuff. So mm. when they went in there, obviously there are hundreds of caves. Yeah. Right? The real treasure trove when they get, went through it was a place that's called Cave 17, also known as the Library Cave. Very ominous. Yes. And so, you know, just kind of give you an idea, they also describe some of these caves as grottos, interestingly mm -hmm. enough. So basically they are dugout chambers, separate, and a whole bunch of stuff went on there. So just to kind of give you a better idea of what the actual complex looked like, there were chambers that were obviously meant for meditation and mm -hmm. study and teaching. Uh, as it grew, there were also chambers, living chambers for monks as well. And there are also some where, that served as burial chambers. Mm -hmm. So this complex covers a lot of ground, but that's not the only thing that was there. The other thing that was there, like I said, is Cave 17, which was adjacent to Cave 16, which apparently belonged to some rather prominent monk. And Cave 17 in particular was kind of well, to use a term, kind of caved in, which is to say the entrance <laughs> to it was blocked off by a whole bunch of sand. Mm. And they kind of came across its existence by accident. As the story goes, I do not know how accurate this, this is, but apparently the local Taoist caretaker, Wang 
Yuan Lu apparently was smoking, and he noticed that <laughs> his smoke was drifting up and over into another chamber, which led him to believe, oh, there might be something there. Gosh. And if, if we've ever got anything good out of cigarettes, it's that. Yeah, apparently so. <laughs> but it was totally, for the most part, cut off from the rest of them. Mm. And what they found inside was incredible. Something that would become known today as the Duong Hong Manuscript. So let's, Patrick, let's you and I talk about the Duong Hong Manuscripts. And so within the complex, a lot of it being in Cave 17 or the library cave, there was anywhere between 10 and 50,000 manuscript scrolls and other documents Jeez. important that they found. And apparently they were pretty darn well preserved. I guess that was the sand. Like, that's what you hear about Pompeii because it was so covered. It was able to stay reserved. And all of a sudden, yeah. yeah. There may be a similar thing going on here. Mm. I mean, obviously, it's different between, you know, no, we're not geologists. Up, yeah. But yeah. this is how it goes. It's, it's interesting, but there was a huge trove of it. It was a major cache of old and sometimes believed, script, uh, you know, lost manuscripts. Many of the course were, were Buddhist texts, as you can imagine, or commentaries on Buddhist texts mm. and teachings. But this cache went a lot further than that. And this is where things are quite incredible. Mm. Other documents and books include works in numerous languages, primarily, primarily Chinese. Yeah. But some of these languages included uh, initial samples of Tibetan writing, Sanskrit, early Gosh. iterations of uh, Uyghur language, basically a Turkic language, uh, Tangut, Sogdian, and even Hebrew. My gosh, that, I guess that's from its Silk Road, people from different languages and cultures coming and going. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Wow. But what's even more interesting than that are those things that fall outside of the Buddhist text. Hmm. Items that give a glimpse into everyday life from the area and, of course, the Silk Road from the 4th to 11th centuries. Cave 17 in particular provides a treasure trove of manuscripts that include things like business ledgers, tax receipts, local and dynastic histories, various contracts, the financial management of the Magao Caves, the Thousand Buddhas complex. Mm. Furthermore, there are exceptionally preserved items regarding in a cultural way which included music, most notably like local wow. folk songs and tunes, you know, ancient versions of the famous game Go, oh. which is often called the Far East versions of chess, mathematical theorems, astronomical studies, works on local geography, a fair amount of Chinese literature to be sure, and even documents regarding medical procedures and treatments for various illnesses. And on top of that, they even found, because now we're talking about the Hebrew, um, mm. a Jewish prayer that was oh identified gosh. in there as well. The only words coming to me are once in a lifetime. Like yes. that kind of discovery that something like this. One of the most prominent items that were in this cache is something called the Diamond Sutra. The Diamond Sutra is a major text within Mahanya Buddhism. 
which is one of the major sects of Buddhism overall. But perhaps more importantly in this discussion, it is also the oldest known printed book ever uncovered, dating back to the 9th century. Printed book. My God. 9th century. What was Gutenberg like? 16th? 15th century? Uh, I want to say he was the 15th century. Yeah, my gosh. Not long before the Protestant Reformation, because yeah. those two obviously yeah, they very go much hand go in hand, hand in hand. Yeah. Absolutely. My and, gosh. And it's not widely known. It might be among our listeners, but it's not mm. widely known that the first printing presses were actually invented in China. Oh, well, there you now, go. this is not to discredit Gutenberg. No, no, and no. I could, and I could be wrong in this. And, and the story of Gutenberg and his printing press is really still a phenomenal one. But the thing, one of the things that's so interesting about Gutenberg's in this case is that his ended up being the first that was truly commercially viable at scale, even though, from what I understand about the history behind that, he actually kind of got gypped on that. But that's a different story for another time. Mm. On top of that, the printing press, as we just alluded to previously, in his case, had a direct and undeniable impact in the time and place that it was invented, specifically when it comes to being able to print the Bible, which was something yeah. that previously used to be extremely expensive to acquire because it was so difficult to put together, especially when you don't have a printing press. Yeah, the Bible is huge, yeah. That's something that we'll definitely look into when we reach it. It's a fascinating time in history. Absolutely. So, Paul, my last question for you is what has ever become of the Mughal Cave since their rediscovery? Like, can I go visit them? These sound incredible. I'd love to go spelunking through these caves. All right. So the fate of the Mughal Caves is kind of an interesting one. When these European archaeologists came about, they actually ended up removing uh, a fair amount of some of the items that they found, including mm. a, lot of, a lot of these manuscripts. They, they paid this local caretaker, but it was... It was not very much. This sounds um, like a very similar story for other parts of the world, Europeans, and of course the British personally, uh, yeah, plundered. It, it's a very controversial subject that maybe at some point we can discuss this greater idea in depth because there's a lot of sides to it that kind of play into it. But essentially, what remains is now available to be seen publicly, to be sure. Mm-hmm. What is interesting to note, however, amazingly... Amazingly, the site was in no way injured by Mm. the events of the Cultural Revolution. That's amazing to hear. Yeah, that was something that when I first saw it, I I thought to myself, oh boy, you know, this is something that would seem like a prime target. And because of those who are not familiar with the Cultural Revolution, one of its aspects was doing away with the old teachings. And so a lot of these great ancient relics from China ultimately ended up getting destroyed. And so a lot of what is truly culturally significant going far back in time, you'll find artifacts that were basically taken out by the Republic of China, also known as the Nationalists, when they basically made their retreat to Taiwan or you'll find them in the hands of other museums that are found around the world. But what, what was interesting, though, and it, you know, this was no guarantee that it would survive, but apparently Zhou Enlai, and Zhou Enlai was one of the most prominent major Chinese communist cadres mm. uh, during 
the Chinese Civil War, he was very much there at the right hand of Mao. He ended up serving most notably as premier. I mean, Mao was still in charge, but he was officially the premier. And most notably, he was also their foreign minister. And he took a personal interest in this site. And apparently, on his own authority, to give it you know, a special grant and support to ultimately protect and, for the most part, keep up the site. And while, like you said, this is no guarantee in the Cultural Revolution that that would, by all means, protect it, there's a very strong possibility that it's one of the reasons why it was able to make it out like that. But today, it's sitting out there in, in northwest China, in Gongsu province, very close to the border with Xinjiang, which I think many people are familiar today with what's happening in Xinjiang with the ethnic Uyghurs in the far northwest of China. We don't need to go into an explanation of that. No. You can look it up if you're not already familiar with it. However, for the most part, since then, you know, sans what has been taken out and you'll find elsewhere, it is available to see publicly. Now, because of where it is, it's not always the easiest to access, but you know, the Chinese are obviously very well known for their high-speed rail. Yes. And so you can, you can get from Beijing to there apparently within a day, which is interesting in and of itself. But the thing that's really amazing about it is that this whole site, and I wish we had more time to get into some of the particulars of, found there outside of the Diamond Sutra in particular, which is quite amazing in and of itself. Yeah. The amazing thing about it is because, you know, to, to use a term, it remained unmolested for the better part of six centuries. And when they did found it, it was almost a perfect time capsule Yeah. for understanding not just greater events, but the people that were there and the ideas that were coming through Duong Hong and Buddhist monks, for the most part, are really, really good archivists. You know, they they're not they don't just necessarily focus on the religious aspects of their duties and commitment, mm. but they collect all sorts of things in history that have actually proven to be very, very useful to historians. We look at this and we say, oh, man, there are business contracts, tax leisures, music, literature, all of these things that are a perfect time capsule and art. I mean, all of the art. Mm. Yeah. Tell you not just about Buddhism and Buddhism at the time that these caves were largely operational, but they tell you so much about life on the ground at that time, which as historians, as you and I know as historical presenters and students of history, are some of the hardest histories to create because there's so little sometimes that you have to go on. Yeah. And so to be able to get these primary documents that very much shed a light on everyday life in that region, especially when it was a hopping hub for the Silk Road and all of these peoples and ideas and items and all of these greater events, that is something in addition to the fact that, oh my God, they <laughs> they created mm -hmm. a complex of hundreds of caves that just kept permeating and proliferating over time. As historians, we actually get a truly amazing picture of what life was like there all cemented in just this incredible snapshot. It sounds amazing. Like, I want to go there. Uh, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, how, how, how can you not? Yeah. And in some ways, because this topic is so immense, it's hard to do it its proper justice mm. from our situation. And 
I think perhaps we can come back to this at some time where we can tell more. But the Magao Caves, if you're not familiar with it, definitely look it up because it is truly amazing. There is so much to it that leaves one truly awe-inspired. And its story of how it proliferated and why, in addition to what it gives to posterity, very much makes it something that falls squarely in our radar for this show. Mm. It's also a UNESCO heritage site. And if you're asking me personally, to me, after what I've learned more about it, just in terms of the site itself, in addition to what it lends to history and posterity, mm. you know, could be considered a wonder of the ancient world, without yeah, a doubt. Undoubtedly, I think this is up there. And it's, it's a shame that it doesn't get as much recognition as it deserves, because it sounds incredible. It is that and more. Mm. And we hope you enjoyed this look at one of the lesser known but truly incredible sites from late antiquity in China and everything that it has given to us. Like I said, I wish we had time to do it more justice, yeah. but them's the ropes at times. But us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from one, Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT and, of course, on YouTube search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.